Squad, and happy Pride Month. My name is Dan, and I am one of your hosts. And I am Allie. Right, so welcome to a very special episode of the podcast, because today we are going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts, LGBTQ plus horror. Yes, as queer lovers of horror, it means a lot to us and many others to see stuff not just limited to representation, which is so important, but also to reclaiming the narrative that had been written about LGBTQ people throughout so much of film history, particularly in horror. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about this a little bit, because it's true. Horror can be a tricky genre to navigate for folks in this community, because for years, the narrative around queer folk in cinema has been uh, a mess, let's just say it. Putting aside the attitude toward LGBTQ folk in Hollywood at large, horror in particular has had some pretty glaring issues in this regard, particularly with the way that the gay and trans community have been portrayed. A lot of early examples of this stuff play heavily off of the stereotype of the so-called monstrous or psychotic or predatory queer, which perhaps uh, wouldn't be an issue were it not such a common trope, and if there were even just a little bit more to it, but honestly, it usually just ends up being something like, this person is gay, or trans, and that explains why they are a killer. The end. Yeah, totally. And I feel like maybe the worst, or at least most infamous offender, has got to be Sleepaway Camp. Oh yeah, definitely. Great point. So, Sleepaway Camp is a classic 80s slasher movie. Super cheesy and ridiculous, great kill scenes, silly dialogue, all this stuff. It's a cult classic for a reason. But all I ever hear anyone talk about with this movie is the ending, where it's revealed that the killer, our protagonist named Angela, is actually a boy who was forced by his mentally ill aunt to dress and live as a girl. And we learn this because the character stands up, penis in full view. Yeah, so it's like forced transvestism, I guess, as opposed to you actually being trans. True, but it's really not a good look and doesn't serve the end of the movie. Some people may not like me saying that because it's a classic, but it's true. No, you're you're totally right. This is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the psychotic queer trope. Although, to be fair, I have heard some trans folks actually reclaim the narrative of that film. Uh, they view it as a bullied trans girl getting revenge on those that gave her a hard time, kinda. I get it, but that kind of makes me sad that we have to twist things to look at it that way. Like, sure, you could look at it that way, but isn't the dead dad also revealed to be gay in that one? Oh, shoot. Yeah, you're right, actually. It just sort of makes the whole thing feel at the expense of LGBTQ folks as opposed to be representative. Like, maybe there is subtext of trans empowerment, but the overt message could be considered iffy. Yeah, that's a great point, Allie. That is a great point. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, that's kind of the purpose of this episode, actually. I would say for years, I mean, like, literally decades, LGBTQ folks existed within the margins of cinema as subtext. Uh, Allie, could you tell us a little bit about the Hayes Code to explain what I mean a bit? Certainly. Implemented from 1934 to 1967, the Hayes Code was a set of rules essentially dictating what could and could not be shown on film with the purpose of preventing corruption. While homosexuality was not explicitly banned in the Hayes text, it was mandated that no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. It was also codified that only correct standards of life should be presented, and that 
sex perversion or any inference to it is forbidden. This would eventually be scrapped and replaced with the rating system, which endures to this day, and in the 60s was enforced very loosely. Yes, exactly. So so think about this, because uh, there's a lot of interesting implications in this. I mean, for one, this led to a lot of characters being what we call coded. In other words, characters that are understood to be something, such as gay or lesbian, even though it's never explicitly shown or stated. There are also tons of examples of this, but maybe even more interesting to me is how this contributed to actually one of the most famous movements in early film, the craze off over the universal monsters. You know, like uh, Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, Creature from the Black Lagoon, etc., etc., Fun and little talked about fact, the man behind some of the most famous films of this kind, James Whale, he was a gay man. This guy directed Frankenstein. He was a gay man. Again, it's not like LGBTQ folks didn't exist, but these individuals weren't allowed to express or be themselves and certainly not in their art. But honestly, I think stuff like this ultimately ended up influencing the movement. I mean, think about it. At their core, a lot of these stories are about social outcasts or not belonging. And especially as we get like more into the 50s and stuff, like the so-called monsters started being portrayed a lot more sympathetically. Many folks argue that that stuff is a perfect example of the subtext about queerness in early horror. But maybe we should mention that once we get to the 70s and lose the Hayes Code completely, the result isn't exactly awesome representation for everyone. Instead, we got literally dozens of films like Vampiros Lesbos. Oh, yeah, Vampiros Lesbos. Oh, jeez, the lesbian vampire thing was really huge in the 70s for some reason. I guess some people might consider this progress or representation or something, but keep in mind that pretty much 100% of these things were directed by men. It was pretty obviously exploitative or meant to be shocking, or sexy, or campy, or something. But it's not exactly super progressive. Well, I mean, I guess you have Rocky Horror in the 70s. Does that count? Mm, I'm gonna say yes. Okay, so, Rocky Horror. But when we get to the 80s, we have stuff like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Do you feel like that counts? Oh, yes, definitely. That movie is very gay. Yes, it really, really is. Uh, There's a leather bar scene. I think there's a scene where a guy gets his butt flogged in a locker room, I think. Something like that. Yeah, uh, among other stuff. Uh, That film is actually famous for its pretty overt so-called subtext. Uh, The lead was even a closeted gay man at the time. He's now out. He even calls himself the first male scream queen, which I kind of like. Uh, But the director denied that it was uh, intentional for years until, like, just recently. (laughs) I love that story. But isn't it a little ridiculous that the director was so insistent for years, even though it was so obvious? I mean, here we are calling this subtext when it's literally a gay whipping scene. (laughs) True. And it's not like this is the best example of LGBTQ horror out there. No, not by a long shot. But this is what it was like, like, for years. But we don't have to settle for this kind of stuff anymore. And, ugh, Allie... Would you mind terribly if I talk about what sort of inspired this episode? Fair warning, it's kind of a bit of a rant. Please do. Alright, well, I don't know if this is going to make me unpopular with other queer horror heads, but here goes. I am pretty tired of this meme about the Babadook being an LGBTQ film. I just really am. Now, just for the briefest backstory, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, the Babadook. 
great horror movie by incredible director Jennifer Kent. Came out in 2014, ostensibly about a single mother and her son coping with a creepy storybook spirit comes to life, ends up being a meditation on grief. Anyway, a couple years ago, this picture goes viral of the Babadook being categorized in the LGBTQ section on Netflix. Now, regardless of whether this was real or photoshopped or whatever, it became a meme, and the LGBTQ folks, we sort of ended up claiming the Babadook as sort of an LGBTQ icon, and the film as an LGBTQ film, saying stuff like, you know, the Babadook is an outcast, you know, look how he hides in the basement, he's unacknowledged, and every time he is unacknowledged, he says, the more you deny me, the stronger I get. There are little ways that people have chosen to interpret this film that way, and it's huge. I mean, someone dressed up as the Babadook for RuPaul's Drag Race, for God's sakes. It's seriously huge. And now for Pride Month, there is a special limited edition rainbow-colored version of the Babadook being released. And y'all, this should be for me. I should love this as a queer dude who's a horror lover, especially since I have a real soft spot for the movie, for Jennifer Kent. So why did I get so annoyed by this? Well... Think about what we spent this entire episode talking about so far. Subtext, hiding messages, hiding queerness, coded messages and roles, potentially unintentionally queer themes being interpreted as queer after the fact. The truth is, we're living in an age where this shit is no longer necessary. There are a bunch of horror films now from LGBTQ folks, for LGBTQ folks, films that don't exploit or demonize queerness, and hey, films that are explicitly about queerness. So as much as I love The Babadook, why don't we support some of the overtly queer horror movies instead? You know, the Fangoria Twitter made a point reacting to this limited edition cover. They said, let the fans determine the canon. Fine. I get that, but can we at least admit that this just started as a meme? That there really are no intentionally queer elements in this movie at all? That's just what gets me. If you Google LGBTQ horror, Babadook comes up, and it kind of muddies the waters in my opinion. I'm fine with fans determining the canon. I guess I just want more folks to celebrate queer horror that is intentionally queer horror. Yes, honestly, I agree with you. Maybe we can start getting into talking about and recommending movies of that nature now? Absolutely. Uh, let's get into it. So, how about you kick us off, Allie? Sure. I think I'm going to start by shouting out a movie called Make-A-Wish that came out in 2002. Now, first off, this isn't the best movie in the world or anything. I mean, it was shot on handheld digital video with almost no budget, so it's very DIY. But this might be the first slasher movie by and for lesbians. No way! Yeah! Director Sharon Ferranti is a lesbian, and it plays a huge role in the movie. Long story short, a bunch of queer women get together for a birthday camping trip for one of their friends. But while they're on the trip, it's clear a killer is targeting them one by one. Alright, so what role does their queerness play in the film? Well... It really feels like it was developed for a queer audience, let me put it that way. There are a lot of inside jokes and references and stuff. I guess my only complaint, if you can call it that, is that the women are really based around pretty typical lesbian stereotypes. Like, one of them is Wiccan, and one is an angry vegan, and so on. But basically, it comes out that they all have either slept with or have feelings for the birthday girl, so... Mm. There's some added drama in addition to the typical slasher stuff. 
This one is kind of like a guilty pleasure watch, but I feel like it was kind of a trailblazer in some ways. Totally, and uh, kind of reminds me of another trailblazer that I really want to talk about called Hellbent, which came out in 2004. Uh, this is similar to what you were talking about, Ali, except uh, this is a slasher around uh, gay men. It's aimed at gay men, follows a group of gay men celebrating Halloween who are stalked by a killer wearing a devil mask and workout tights. <laughs> it's really something else. Whoa. I don't think I've seen that one. Uh, honestly, it kind of got forgotten. Some stuff about it doesn't hold up, like some of the language in the film has been phased out of the LGBTQ community, if you know what I mean. And it's not the most diverse film, but it was totally a groundbreaking thing at the time. This movie even goes like out of its way to show that the killer doesn't kill them because they're gay or having sex or anything like that. It's just a slasher, and they happen to be gay men. Practical effects for the kill, some fun campy scenes. You've got yourself a pretty fun little slasher and an influential one, too. Nice. I like it a lot. That reminds me of another one I don't know if I've told you about. It's similar. It's a horror movie, and they just sort of happen to be lesbians. Have I ever told you about a movie called Lyle? No, actually. It's a good one. Everyone calls it a modern-day Rosemary's Baby, and it kind of is that. But it's also sort of a psychological horror. It's hard to classify it, but it's good. Gabby Hoffman is in it, and she's great. She plays this lesbian woman who becomes paranoid about her neighbors and think they're in a cult. Mm. I can't give too much away, because it's actually a super short movie, barely over an hour long. Oh, wow. And the secret is the whole fun of it. But it's good, and it's really refreshing to see a lesbian couple in a film like this. Absolutely. Kind of like the movie What Keeps You Alive from 2018, just last year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that movie revolves around a lesbian couple as well. It's something like uh, they go into this cabin in the woods, kind of starting to see a theme here, and uh, one of them is slowly revealed to have a dark and violent past. Similar thing uh, to the representation in this case. Yeah, it's so simple, but it really matters and makes a difference. I, I totally agree. What about Lizzie, then? Can we count Lizzie? Lizzie definitely counts. Yeah, this is a real good one. Uh, this is a Lizzie Borden biopic starring Chloe Sevigny as Lizzie and Kristen Stewart as her love interest. Now, I like this a lot. In this telling of the tale, Lizzie was a queer woman who lived with cruel, domineering parents, which is precisely what led her to eventually killing them when she believes that her relationship has been found out and her love is at risk. So it's kind of like a twisted queer love story set in the late 1800s period piece thing going on. Also something of a feminist horror film as well. Uh, Ali, how did you feel about this one? So good. Definitely. The directing is really, really good in that one. Yeah, yeah. The directing, uh, the costumes, shit. The uh, acting, both Sevigny and Stewart are goddamn amazing. Uh, this is maybe one of the better films on our list, actually. Definitely worth seeing, uh, even by non-horror fans. It's just kind of really good and unappreciated, in my opinion. And it's on Shudder. Yes, it's on Shudder. Uh, if you have Shudder, you, you gotta see it. What I like so much about this one for this episode is that their whole relationship, the fact that they're lesbians, it's basically the whole point of the story. It completely changes the narrative around Lizzie Borden, and it's just really interesting. And their queerness is at the heart of it all. Exactly. I feel the same way. This is exactly why we're talking about films like these, because this is queer horror in a totally different way than what we have seen in the past. I would say Let the Right One In is another good example of that. Yes, and one of my favorite examples, too. Such an incredible movie. 
Yes, and I'm going to say, stick with the original before you just move to the American remake right away. Agreed. We love Chloe Grace Moretz, I think her name is, but the original is just, ah, it's really, really something else. It's a great story, and it's definitely queer if you ask me. The movie kind of plays with the idea of gender a bit, and even their relationship. There's a lot of things in this movie about being an outsider, feeling left out, but finding belonging and safety in another person. And that's pretty queer to me, and way more overt than the Babadook. So well put, and I I totally agree. So how do you feel? Did we cover it? I feel like we did. I feel like we did pretty well. Me too. The fact is, like, we could keep going. I mean, Rift came out in 2017, revolves around a romance between two men, uh, literally any Bruce LaBruce film, and that's gay for sure, and I would even say some of it is extreme cinema. We didn't get into that at all. Uh, there's tons of stuff, and we could talk about how we're really still waiting for a horror film that does justice to trans folks. We kind of don't have that yet. Uh, the conversation is ongoing, let's say. Definitely. I also wanted to mention a movie that came out in 1980, Cruising, with Al Pacino, where he plays a serial killer who stalks gay bars, and how problematic it was for how it portrayed the gay community at the time. It was really demonizing. Right, right. I actually remember that one. I mean, I I guess it just contributes to the point, right? I mean, like, how bad the representation used to be and how, how different it is now. So we should support these kinds of movies. Yes. Absolutely we should, especially during Pride Month. Happy Pride, everyone! Happy Pride! All right, uh, I think that's gonna do it for us. Do you feel good? I feel good! All right, well, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, what are your thoughts on LGBTQ horror? Did we miss anything that you love? And, uh, as always, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more updates. From Spook Squad, this is Dan. And Ali. Signing out. (laughs)